You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. And in places where I could not speak the language at all, and these little islands in Indonesia, people, we, we really connected through music. That is what causes you to have something new and creative and new and different, is that you are seeing connections between, between things that have no connections. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 211, Musical Journeys airing for the first time on Sunday, October 4th, 2015. Journeys can be both literal and figurative. We can see the world through travel, but we can also journey without leaving our physical space. Today we speak with international best-selling author Tess Gerritsen and musician Amelia Dolan about the journeys they have each taken while practicing their craft and how the melodies of life have influenced their experience. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. I was first introduced to our guest, Amelia Dolan, at a TEDx that happened a few years ago here in Portland. I'm really glad that we are able to connect and bring her in to speak with us today because she's a pretty inspiring lady. Amelia Dolan is a singer-songwriter based in Greater Portland, born on a small farm south of Boston to a musical instrument-collecting father and accordion-playing mother, Amelia was destined for a life of music. She started piano formally at the age of five and trained classically for the next 13 years. It was Christmas Day 1996 when Amelia decided she wanted to play the guitar. She went up to the attic, pulled out a warped and worn guitar that once belonged to her great-grandfather and started to play. She never stopped. She now lives in Gorham with her husband and son. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's such a lovely story of your life. (laughs) <laughs> you know this whole I, I, I love that that your father was a musical instrument collector and your mother was an accordion player and those both have very different sort of musical connotations in my mind oh boy I don't know I mean in some ways there there was a, there were a lot of different genres and styles that I grew up with in the household my mom is actually really um, big Broadway fan lots of musicals Tommy tunes um, and uh, my dad really loves classical music and has kind of gone towards more Celtic and and so there was always just a lot happening and then we we had my um, 
my uncle was a radio DJ in the 70s and he had this he we got his collection of vinyl Led Zeppelin Beatles you know just kind of classics from that era so I feel really lucky that I was kind of immersed in some ways I feel like it it set me on this path early on and it was Christmas Day in 1996. What was it about that particular day? <laughs> it's so specific. Right, this is going to sound really cliche in some ways for for uh, you can be as a, cliche a as you want but, to. So I received um, 10,000 Curfews, which was the Indigo Girls live CD that day. My sister Ingrid had given it to me, and I was listening. And they're incredible songwriters, um, just so gifted and great musicians as well. And uh, I was listening. I thought, I I want to do this. I need to do this. And I knew that we had a couple of guitars laying around, um, which belonged to my great grandfather. And so I decided that that was the day. And we had a few books laying around, instruction books, and that's when it started. So this is actually, it is more of a family business than just your mother and your father. It sounds like great-grandfather, guitar, I mean, you've got some music running through your veins. Yeah, my so my Italian great-grandfather, he got to play clarinet at uh, Giuseppe Verdi's, I don't know if you're familiar with yes. Verdi's, um, at his birthday party when he was just a kid. And so, uh, yeah, I'd say it, it runs in the family a bit. When I heard you speak at TEDx Dirigo, you were talking about the work you did traveling around the world and actually doing um, work with different groups, um, playing guitar, singing songs, and it was a very, it was like a, I don't know, like almost a musical missionary thing that was happening. <laughs> and it was really pretty fantastic. Um, thanks. We, I, you know, I can't say... There was a mission in mind. I was traveling with a group of people and we were visiting sustainable and intentional communities um, in different places in the globe that had been long standing there for 50 years or more and really looking at the challenges and the successes of how really strong community is built. And wherever we were, music was the thing that brought everybody together. And so having, you know, a background in music, I got to really plug in and and um, pull people together a little bit in that way. And it was just, it just cemented for me this idea of the, the power of music to really connect people. Um, and in places where I could not speak the language at all, and these little islands in Indonesia, people we we really connected through music and it's also amazing to hear you know when I was in the favela in um, Sao Paulo uh, Jason Mraz <laughs> being pumped out through the speakers and people who they couldn't speak English but they were singing along to the music and in, in Indonesia the Eurythmics people understood and it is incredible to hear the reach of songs and music that 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 goes out into the world um yeah powerful stuff so how did that work if you couldn't speak the language and i'm assuming that you were playing songs that you knew did you also pick up songs that were from wherever it was that you went yeah so we would teach we would teach you that each other songs and uh even though you might not understand what the words are saying or exactly how to say them you could you could kind of pick it up so um there was a lot of just teaching each other or figuring it out picking up my guitar and just kind of noodling around until I could 
contribute in, <laughs> in some way or participate. So what about musical instruments? Did you pick up any musical instruments that were um, part of the culture of wherever you went? Um, I did not. I got a couple really small percussion instruments, but we were living out of a small bag, and so I had um, uh, Doug Green of Green Design here in Maine lent me a little traveler guitar, a little backpacking guitar, so it was light enough that I could take it with me, and um, that was about the only thing that I had room for to travel. Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that they had traveling guitars. It kind of makes you seem like an itinerant little, musician, yeah, you know? A little like backpacker. Just... Some look like little sticks, you know, that are very, very thin guitars, so it's pretty cool. Yeah. You've been working with Seeds of Peace, I believe, and you, this kind of extends on this multicultural, global um, interest that you have. Tell yeah. me about that. So I... You know, before before I left, I've always had this um, belief in the power of music to bring people together. And that's, you know, playing at a bar in the old fort, or it's playing in some kind of a multicultural setting where it's really bringing people together. And I think that serves in their own ways in really important ways. And, um, and I had been touring really hard for over a decade before I went on this trip and was really, really getting tired. And also um, from feeling like something was missing, being a DIY musician and doing a lot of your own booking and managing and a promotion, it gets, it, it was getting tiring for me and feeling like I, I was um, missing a little bit of that kind of mission piece. Like what can I do that's greater outside of myself through music um, to do something positive in the world. And so I had gone on this trip and just my, when I left, I was kind of at the height of my career and I had just released this new CD that I was really proud of, Rattle Them Bones. And um, I had just opened up for Ani DeFranco and I was touring around. It was, it was a good time. And I thought, okay, if I leave now, is this going to be the end of things? Does this do I lose my momentum? But I felt really strongly that I needed to find something, find a different way to engage. And so when I came back, um, a good a dear friend of mine, Deb Bicknell, who is a facilitator, you're smiling. You know, I'm De smiling because I went to high school with Deb oh, Bicknell. Oh, you did? Yes, oh, it's a small awesome. world main she's, thing. Yeah, and she's kind of, she's famous around here, I think, a little bit. Every A lot of people know Deb, so for being a, an extraordinary person. So she which she and I got together and she said, you know, I have this idea. I'm, I just had this incredible experience in Gaza where I was brought to this place and they played music and I finally felt like I was home. I was in this really unfamiliar place and it just really brought everybody together. And I've been wanting to do something like this here and I had also been feeling like that. And and so we got together and what we, we called this project was the Transcendence Project to the idea that music gives us these uh, this ability to transcend our our personal boundaries in some ways our geographic boundaries and political um and so deb had been working with seeds of peace and we for a while we're just listening for you know okay well we want to do this thing how is it going to manifest and how it ended up manifesting is that we collaborated with the educators course through seeds of peace in this one particular year, so this was now 2012, I believe, 2012, uh, they brought um, 
educators from nine different countries in conflict, from the U.S., um, Pakistan, India, uh, Jordan, Egypt, uh, Israel, Palestine. Um, There's somebody there from Gaza. I don't know if I said Jordan. I want to make sure. <laughs> Everybody, you can go on the website I, I, and check I'll it out. out you did say Jordan, but um, can you maybe just list the last couple or list one more? Or uh, let me say. Or you so, can just say nine different countries, such as. Yes. Give a few. Okay, thank yeah. you. So there are nine different countries in conflict from the U.S., Israel, Palestine, uh, Jordan, Pakistan, India. Um, and these are all people who engage the arts and the peaceworking work that they do in the world. Um, and so 35 different people came to the camp here at in Maine. And they were having their own experience in the camp, but what, what the Transcendence Project brought to it was um, a performance. And so we were brought in to help cultivate and foster this performance that would become a public, uh, public performance and kind of an, an offering an opportunity for people here in Maine. And so we had 10 days to get together these 35 people from nine different countries with all different disciplines from, you know, there were writers and poets, um, singers, percussionists, uh, and musicians, cellists, viola players. So, um, and we had no plan whatsoever of how we were going to do it. So we got everybody together in a room. And over the course of 10 days, these songs arose and these um, kind of theatrical, dramatic pieces as well and readings. And um, we were over at PPAC here in, in Portland and put on this performance at the end of 10 days and it was a pressure cooker and before the the curtains opened we had no idea what was truly going to happen on stage and it was absolutely beautiful it was a breathtaking evening with um uh just just an incredible show of of uh creative solidarity and so people were really moved and um by the experience and over the past few years we've all kept in touch and decided we, this this music, these writings, this work has evolved from this piece, how can we carry it forward and how can we become um, kind of a clearinghouse, not a clearinghouse, how can we become a resource for other people who are out doing this kind of work, using the arts as a catalyst for social change in the places where they are. and so. Uh, uh, Shoshana Gutsman, who is a viola player and has worked at Seeds of Peace, she wrote a grant to continue this work that, and it was funded. And she's been kind of the the catalyst who has roped everybody in. And I will say, trying to to record, so we re-recorded these songs. It was really difficult trying to get a singer from Gaza to um, to record. I mean, this is. We don't, I feel like uh, it's hard to imagine here in the U.S. Just trying to move cr across borders can be incredibly challenging for a lot of these folks. Um, and in some cases, really dangerous what they're, what they're doing and the people that they're, they're um, collaborating with is considered 
dangerous in some ways. So um, people are really putting themselves on the line in some ways for this for this vision. And uh, we're we're just releasing a website. So we're calling it "We Make the Road by Walking." There is uh, there are writings, there are recordings. We've put it out on Bandcamp. It's free. It's by donation only. So we really wanted to make it accessible. Um, it's connected to a link on the Seeds of Peace website, which is again a resource for educators where they can find more material, ideas, and just kind of hear the story about what we've been doing. So that's the long version of We Make the Road by Walking. Um, if you go to Bandcamp and type in We Make the Road by Walking, you can find the CD. You also have your own personal live music CD coming up. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to play a song for us, which I'd like you to tell us about. Okay, so this is uh, a newer tune. It's entirely um, uh, inspired by Maine. And so part of the reason why I've chosen to stay here in Maine is just I find it, the natural beauty of Maine is so inspiring to me. So I, uh, we were living on a friend's farm for the summer up in Montville, Maine, which is near the mid-coast. And um, this kind of arose over the past, over two days, um, the moonlight streaming in the window and the owls and the birds that were around and just um, feeling a lot of gratitude for this natural beauty that I get to experience around me here. Across the room. Thank you to the owls' cry, kept company all through the night. Just before the light blue dawn, wood thrush calls to cheer it on. From the field not far away, grateful for another day. Whoa, us all of noonday sun.
the pregnant moon As quiet gently fills the room Thank you to the starry sky Whirled overhead all through the night Just before the light blue dawn A wood thrush called to cheer it on From the field not far away I'm grateful for another day whoa, whoa, Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by their store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. Well, that was very beautiful. And I can imagine that your son probably enjoys hearing you sing that to him. <laughs> he you, does. You are the mother of a, an 18-month-old at this point. I am. And he yeah. keeps you pretty busy, I think. He does. I gotta say, it's been a real struggle to uh, keep my identity as an artist during the past 18 months and um, keep a creative practice. It's I, I'm, I sing my way through my days. <laughs> I'm always singing. But to really sit down and I think people who anybody who has a creative practice can understand that it it takes time and in some in some ways discipline to um, to really continue creating work and so um it's part of the reason why new cd feels you know live live recordings and is really exciting um i'm still getting out and playing <laughs> and hoping to do more of that um i'll be performing at federal street folly which is uh part of the press hotel on october 2nd it's first friday so first friday at federal street folly it's a great uh alliteration <laughs> help you remember um so yeah i'm feeling excited about um feeling like a songwriter again well i must say for those of you who are listening and heard the aaron frederick interview you might uh this might there might be some echoes here because aaron is actually amelia's husband so we actually had a conversation about what it was like to have a small child in the house and how it shifted one's ability to i guess um exist in the world in the way that yeah. one was used to previously yeah so i've heard this before it's, it's <laughs> oh, funny to hear it from oh, your sure. standpoint and also from aaron's standpoint <laughs> and anybody who's a parent can can understand it's just it's a major um you've got to reprioritize and and it's also just uh a shift in identity i think becoming a mother and thinking okay who who was i who am i now who do i want to be and who who can I be? Um, questions I'm asking all the time. 
hey, I feel it. I, I, <laughs> I have my, my own three children, and I think it's interesting how often I go out in the world and I am Campbell's mom, Abby's mom, mm-hmm. Sophie's mom, mm-hmm. and my oldest is 22. Mm-hmm. So that's been a couple decades, which is about half my life of being somebody's mom. So I totally understand what you're saying, and I think it's interesting for you because at, le- at the end of the day, I can, I can leave my house and go to my job, and I can be that person at that job. Mm-hmm. If you're a creative individual who's trying to be working creatively out of your home, then I'm guessing it's not so easy to do that. No. In fact, uh, when I leave here, I brought my guitar, and I'm going (laughs) to the park. I'm going to uh, the East End. I'm going to bring my guitar, and I'm finding finding space away from home, and uh, that's what I need for my own creative process. And I think that's that's been a really important part of kind of figuring out how to do this is, okay, how, what, what do I, how can I support my creative process best? And for me, that means um, being away from the responsibilities that I have and finding quiet space and, and being outside too. You also do work um, as a teacher. You are an artist in residence from um, at a local school, and this is something that you find pretty gratifying. I have, yeah, it's been incredible. It's been great. So, um, my my kind of role as a teaching artist started through the Telling Room here in Portland. Who I, I just have a huge. Um, amount of respect for the work that the telling room does in the community and they had pulled me in to um, to do a songwriting workshop and I had also done that with Ripple Effect and so I had started uh, doing this a little bit more with kids and I'd go in and we'd talk about some of the literary tools and basics of songwriting and then we'd within a few hours we'd whip a song together and it was a lot of fun so I started working with the Maine Academy of Modern Music as well, and um, the the founder and director, Jeff Shaw, is on the PTO over at Ocean Ave Elementary School, as well as Gibson Faleblanc, who is former executive director over at the Telling Room. So the PTO wrote a grant that was funded through the Maine Community Foundation and in part by the Maine Arts Commission uh, to fund arts enrichment throughout the year for these 450 kids, K through five, a very diverse, vibrant school. Um, uh, They had writing, they did dance, they had some um, sculpting as well, and so I went in to write songs with all 450 kids. So I was working uh, in tandem with Dr. Mack, who's the music teacher over there, and we wrote a song over the course of the year, a song for each class, so 21 songs. So we've written 63 songs throughout the the past three years, some of them not as complex as others, obviously, with the kindergartners. um, and and some of them very complex and I think um, sophisticated for an age group that you might not other uh, might not otherwise uh, think that they'd be up for some, that that kind of a challenge and every year there's been a different prompt but it's been really gratifying and uh, we've brought in as part of that we've brought in musicians and songwriters from the community so we brought in the Fog Cutters 19-piece big band to play for these kids they were blown away Santiago came in and rapped um, Sam James came in and told stories and showed them, played and showed them all his guitars and resonators uh, so it's been really exciting a way to engage the community here and I think for some of these kids it's the first time that they've been exposed to live music like that um, so the kids have loved it and I've they've the school has been really welcoming and 
um, I hope I get to continue that work with them. As you're talking about this, I'm, I'm interested because I'm thinking about the different ways in which we communicate. And obviously, we're in a multimedia world these days, so we've got social media, you know, we're very image, very photo-driven. The songwriting piece, though, it's not necessarily something you immediately jump to. We think about sharing music, but we don't necessarily think about writing a song and sharing our story through music. And it's it's a it's a really wonderful way to engage. You talk about imagery, you know, creating imagery only through words and through the feeling of the song. And and so we talked a lot about literary tools and how to create really strong imagery, um, uh, and. And storytelling, you know, as humans, we've been storytellers <laughs> in, in every culture throughout throughout history. And I think there's a piece that's really stories are important, and and for a lot of different reasons, and um, for legacies, for in terms of history, and term in terms of um, empathy and being able to understand each other uh, and compassion that that is what stories do they bring us in and allow us to live in somebody else's shoes or experience somebody else's experience so um, uh, I, I think all kids should be <laughs> storytelling more and I think as a culture it's becoming a lot more popular and kind of in vogue when you think about the moth and all these storytelling events that are becoming huge and it's simple but I think it's because it's it's part of what we do is humans and and kind of crave in a way I had recently done some um, I guess some studying up on linguistics because I love language and mm-hmm. I love the idea of languages I had no idea that we there are more than 6,000 languages in the world oh. we think of some standards but yeah what some people would call dialects they're actually languages it's just that they aren't maybe as codified they aren't as mm-hmm. written down and also this idea that if the world were 24 hours old then it would only be 23 and a half would be when we started to write things down wow. so it, there is this amazing oral history tradition and probably part of it um, as carried through with song so you have this long legacy behind you without a doubt without a doubt and you know we're doing it digitally but I I still firmly believe there is no substitute for resonance and what happens when you hear a voice and it comes from a real body (laughs) you know with emotions and where we are all um uh, we receive it in in a different way when it's actual sound. Yeah. Amelia, I know people are going to want to hear you at the Press Hotel at the first Friday that's coming up on October 2nd, and they're going to want to get your live CD, and they're going to want to learn more about Seeds of Peace. Do you have a website? Yes, so ameliadollin.com. So my name is spelled with an E. It's E-M-I-L-I-A. Dollin is D-A-H-L-I-N. So ameliadollin.com. I also have a Facebook page. You can find me in the digital world pretty easily, but um, I'd say the website website and uh, Facebook page are probably the best ways to find out about what's going on and the Transcendence Project Seeds collaboration. 
You can also uh, see a picture of Amelia and her beautiful child and her lovely husband. They're all in the Oldport magazine, uh, Active Life. This is with Erin Frederick. You can listen to the conversation we had with Erin not so long ago. We've been speaking with Amelia Dolan. She's a singer-songwriter based in Greater Portland. It's really been wonderful to speak with you today, and thank you for all the great things you're doing to bring music to the world. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by McPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. McPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. We have many amazing people in Maine who are doing things on the international scene. One of these individuals is Dr. Tess Gerritsen, who is both an international best-selling author and a physician. Dr. Gerritsen, uh, Tess, is known for the Rizzoli and Isles series, which was just renewed for its seventh season on TNT and is going into syndication. Her latest book is Die Again. She also has the book Playing with Fire coming out, not a Rizzoli and Isles book, but something I think people will want to read because I certainly found it to be a page turner. Uh, Tess is creating a feature horror film set in Maine with her son, and she lives with her husband in Camden. Thanks so much for coming back in and talking with us today. Oh, thanks. It's great to be back. Well, you came in and had a conversation with uh, Susan Grisanti and I not so long ago. Susan is the editor of Maine Magazine. You were talking about your book, Playing with Fire. And you really got our, you got, our, got us interested because it has this strong musical theme. You're a musician. Mm-hmm. You are and a musician. Strictly amateur. Okay. <laughs> but still, you have a very strong musical background. And there is something about that and also this idea of travel to a foreign place because this next book is set in Italy. All of these things kind of came together to create this book for you, which is very different than mm-hmm. the Rizzoli and Isle series. Yeah. So tell me about this. It, um, I think of it as a gift from the larger world. <laughs> you know, it's usually when I sit down to create a book, it's my, my editor wants a particular type of book, and that is the Rizzoli and Isles mystery series, which sells very well. Uh, so I, this book came to me as a gift almost from the universe. I was in Venice for my birthday, uh, and I had a nightmare. I dreamt that I was playing my violin, and it was a very dark and disturbing piece of music. As I was playing, there was a baby sitting next to me, and the baby's eyes suddenly glowed red, and she turned into a monster. And I woke up thinking, I have no idea where this, what this dream comes from. I mean, I, yes, I do play the violin, but who was the baby, and why did the baby turn into a monster? Um, I, I was really quite haunted by that whole idea of music turning, turning innocence into, into horrifying people. Um, and I walked around Venice that day thinking, there's a book here. I don't know what the book is about, something about evil children, um, and where does this music come from? So I ended up in the Jewish Quarter, uh, the original uh, ghetto in Venice, uh, and was walking around where they had these um, memorials to the 246 Venetian Jews who were deported to Portland and, and, and executed. And all of a sudden, the whole story came to me, just like in a flash. I mean, just from beginning to end, I knew what this story was about. I went home and I began to write it. It is about a woman violinist who picks up a mysterious piece of handwritten music in in Rome. 
takes it home, and every time she plays it, her three-year-old goes berserk and does something violent. So this is the monstrous child. What is the history of this music? So the, the book really goes into great you know, a description about the piece, what it sounds like. Um, you know, some I mentioned devil's chords, and those of you who are musicians will understand what those are. They're tritones, and they're very disturbing to listen to. And one morning, um, after having worked on the book for about you know a year, I woke up with the melody in my head. And this was the other thing, was a gift from the universe. I heard the music from my dreams, and I composed it. So not only do we have a story about this mysterious piece of music, we also have a piece of music that is um, is, uh, is is recorded by a very very well known violinist, and will be available for readers to hear as well. I'm interested in the the story of the devil bedeviled child because it's not something a lot of authors want to take on. No, it's scary. Yeah. Those of us who are parents, I mean, <laughs> it's it's probably the worst thing you can imagine is is being terrified of your own child. Um, and I I made the child three because that is an innocent age. That's an age when you don't think of children as being evil. Um, so this mother, who is confronted with the possibility that her child is evil, has you know, she's living this horrifying this horrifying life now because her whole family is falling apart. She is afraid of her three-year-old, and everybody else thinks she's going crazy because who's afraid of a three-year-old? And that was something that I, as I was reading the book, I was I was struck by that she her husband didn't believe her. It was sort of threatening to break up her marriage. She actually had to to leave and get away from her husband so that she could kind of get her head on straight. And then there's an interesting twist at the end. So it turns mm-hmm. out that the child, well, I don't even want to. No, I, I no, wanna, that's a spoiler. <laughs> I, I don't want to say anything. There's an interesting twist at the end, yes. let's just say. Yes. Um, one of the things that you and I talked about with um, with Susan Grisanti was the fact that you do, the type of work that you do always has some basis in reality. Mm-hmm. And it was important to you that, that there was there would be a good reason for this all to have happened. Right. I don't like to play with the super... I mean, I like to tease you with the possibility of the supernatural, because the supernatural fascinates me. But I am, at heart, a science person, and I always want to circle back to something logical, to something believable, and to something possible. You also, in the book Die Again, you, you go into an interesting thing for me, which is, um, which is the killing of animals. Yes, and which the, is in the news now, surprisingly. Yes. Exactly, right. exactly. So talk to us about that. Um, I went to Africa on safari a couple of years ago, and we had a really, my husband and I had an interesting experience out in the bush. Now, those people who've been on safari will know you, you take a plane out into the bush and some guy meets you in a jeep at the airstrip. And um, our guide who met us said, um, I'm here to keep you safe. Uh, you must not get out of the Jeep unless I tell you it's all right. And we listened to the, his advice because there, a couple months before there had been a group of Chinese tourists who did not understand those instructions. And they stopped to look at lions and two men jumped out and were killed. So of course we stayed in the Jeep. Uh, and one, one afternoon we stopped for cocktails in the bush um, and we, were, we all got out of the Jeep because we thought it was safe and we were sitting around looking, you know, drinking our gin and tonics. And my husband said, uh, I need to go pee. I'm going to go walk into that bush over there. Our guide said, well, why don't you go in the other direction? Because I'd heard reports of a leopard being seen in, you know, down that valley. So my husband walked in the other direction. And less than a minute later, out of the bush that he had originally been headed for, a leopard walked out. 
we're all out of the Jeep. We're all standing around with our cocktails. And uh, the leopard came toward us, and our guide just, he just stepped between us and the leopard. Um, made himself really big, and the leopard decided she didn't want to tackle him and walked back into the bush. I realized after that that, you know, he saved our lives. That man, we have to trust your guide. But then, of course, the writer always takes over, and the writer thought, but what if you trust the wrong person? What if the man who picks you up at the landing strip is not who he said he is? What if it turns out the most dangerous creature in the bush is on two legs? So that, that, was, the, that was the basis for Die Again. And, and as you mentioned, it talks a lot about big game hunting, uh, about the killing of protected animals, and um, a lot about the nature, the real nature of cats. I think what I liked about Die Again was, again, there was it was an interesting twist at the end. Yes. There, there was these two stories, the two storylines, and I couldn't quite see how they were all going to come together, but I had an idea, well, maybe this is going to happen. But at the end, you surprised me. I turned the page, you surprised me, and I was like, wow, she's masterful. <laughs> Obviously, you're very good at what you do. I try, I try. And the truth is, I did not know the answer to that um, mystery until about two-thirds of the way through the first draft. Uh-huh. And that's the way I work. I really kind of, you know, I, I set off without a net, standing up there on the, on the tightrope, trying to figure out, you know, just step by step by step. And then about two-thirds of the way through, I thought, oh, now I know the answer. Um, and that's just my technique for writing it. I don't recommend it because it drives you crazy and I get writer's block, but it works for me. It is very interesting because as a physician, in many ways, even though we have to be problem solvers, we're also trained to be fairly linear. Mm-hmm. So you're, mm-hmm. there's algorithms, you follow the algorithm, right. and, and right. You, you come out with what you hope is going to be the expected outcome. Right. That's not the way writing is. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Because I know I know lawyers who are also novelists, and they are they're much, they line up their ducks. They have their ducks all lined up in a row. They they plot out their book, and then they then they write it. Um, and I'm sure that the average doctor would probably do it that way as well. I tried to do it that way. Um, what happens is that about halfway through the book, I just veer off my outline because I get bored. I think part of it is that when you have an outline, you know what's going to happen. And it takes the excitement out of out of writing the story. So I I like the um, I like the opportunity of being able to veer off the track, uh, to let the characters do something that surprises you. I'm always waiting for them to surprise me, and when they do, I'm just thrilled. <laughs> Well, I appreciated that, and I appreciated actually both of these books. I was reading them at the same time, and I was thinking, you know, the 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 idea that you could come up with something that was not what the reader would expect mm-hmm. is pretty wonderful. It's and and I again, I just go back to my subconscious. I don't know where it comes from. Um, I think that part of creativity is, and this is my theory about creativity, about where you come up with new ideas, is all your experiences, your, your reading, all the kinds of things that you, all this data you collect, the facts you collect, um, if you can somehow match up part A with part Q, things that don't people don't even think are connected, that is what causes you to have something new and creative and new and different, is that you are seeing connections between, between things that have no connections. Um, and that's what I'm always trying to do with the books. Uh, for instance, with, with playing with fire, you know, we start off with uh, music and we start off with um, a, a crazy child. Um, but then I also put neuroscience into it. And that is, you know, that is all, that all ties together at the end for the solution. And you also threw in a little bit of interesting history and about the, the Jews that yeah. were deported 
to Poland from Italy, which you also were describing to us when you came in, and you were you were saying that the interesting kind of cultural aspect of Venice that kept it so that there were only so many Jews that were mm-hmm. deported compared to some of the other countries where yes. so many more. Well, this that was what really fascinated me about this this topic. I mean, yes, the book is about music, but it's also about World War II and Italy and how Italy was so different from the rest of of occupied Europe. Um, I was looking at these statistics for for Italy. They you know they were they were an Axis power, and yet eighty percent of their Jews survived the war. What made it different from Germany, where ninety percent died, Poland, where ninety percent died, even Holland, where I think it was like eighty percent, maybe seventy five percent of their Jews died. Um, what was different about Italy? And the stories that I came across were what really moved me the most because it it, it was. I think it was the courage of a, of a common, ordinary Italian, which was so beautiful. Um, people would hide their neighbors. Uh, they had nuns and priests who would hide Jews in convents and monasteries and at, the, at risk to their own lives. So, um, and I also, there were some funny things too about what made Italians different. And there was one um, psychologist who said, well, drive around Rome and you will see that Italians don't follow the rules if they don't believe in them. You know, just traffic, and that's true. I mean, if they don't, if they don't believe in a law, they won't follow it. Um, and I think that's what happened in Italy is that a lot of Italians just said, you know, screw this. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna turn over my neighbors. So that must have really appealed to you. You're the person who likes to veer off the, I, I veer know, off the you track. Know what? Isn't that funny? Because this, this really moves me. Um, I guess the idea of quiet heroes. Um, people who don't have to do something heroic can do it anyway. I mean, even while I was writing the book, I was just so moved by these stories. It's interesting that even now it yeah. brings up these emotions for you. Um, it's going to be tough going on book tour with this <laughs> with this particular book. Yeah, I feel it, it's. I, I think you're interesting. Um, well, having now interviewed you twice, uh-huh. you you have this this very. Um, sort of take, let's take control of the, of, of the, the, I don't know, the horror mystery. Yeah. And then there's, there are these things that kind of crop up for you and they kind of tweak you in a way that well, you don't expect. I think writing for me is very much an emotional process. I think you can't tell a convincing story unless you, you are so thoroughly entwined in your book that the emotions come through you. And I think that's what happened with Playing With Fire, was that the emotions of this young couple that fall in love and they're, you know, this doomed love affair. And then the overall um, tapestry of a whole country trying to come to grips with a leadership that is telling them to do things that they don't believe with. You know, how do you react to that? Why, did the, why were the Italians different from, from the, the Dutch? Um, who were, you know, by and large a liberal people, and, um, but nevertheless, they did things they knew were wrong because somebody told them to do it. Um, and you ask yourself, what would, that, what would it be like in the United States? Something came down from above, turn over your neighbors, turn over, you know, all the Muslims, turn over all the Jews. What would Americans do? Yeah, I, I think when I went to the Holocaust Museum in um, Washington, I, I wondered the same thing. What would I do yeah. if I was one of these people? Right. And I'm I'm not Jewish. I'm Christian. Uh-huh. Would I be the one who was hiding my neighbor in my cellar, or would I be the one who felt compelled to turn my neighbor over? Well, and you know, even take it a step further. Would you be the one to hide your neighbor in the cellar at risk of getting yourself executed? 
That was the extra step they took to risk their own lives, their families' lives, to do the right thing. This book was so important to you, Playing With Fire, that you you were willing to take a risk and say to your publisher, look, I know this is nothing like yeah. Die Again. <laughs> it's nothing like Rizzoli and Isles. In fact, on the front page of the book, there's a, a note from the publisher that says, this book is nothing like Rizzoli and Isles. This yeah. book is going to be what it is. You're going to love it anyway. But it was a huge risk for you. You felt really strongly about this. Um, you know, the, the books I love the most that I write are the ones that nobody actually wants. <laughs> it's, it's, they're the books my, my publisher goes, what is this? What are we going to do with it? Um, I remember I wrote you know, a book called The Bone Garden, which again, completely off topic, no Rizzoli and Isles, not, not, not even a, a contemporary novel. It was set in 1830s Boston. And um, I think my publisher was not quite sure what to do with it, but um, luckily, I, I, you know, they, we've been working together so long that um, it, they realized, well, she wants, to, she wants to publish this book, and this is an important book, and even though it may not sell as well, um, there it goes off to market. You've also championed something that is maybe not as, I guess, popular as perhaps some other medical problems, and that's Alzheimer's. Yeah. I mean, it's we have a huge uh, outpouring of support for breast cancer and breast cancer research, and Alzheimer's, which impacts so many of us, mm-hmm. is, doesn't have quite the same cachet. You raised $50,000, which went directly to Alzheimer's research in your yeah. first campaign. You're doing a second campaign, mm-hmm. and that was important to you because your father had dementia. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily... When you feel strongly about something, you get behind it. Well, you know, this is. I think I'm. I'm not only behind it. I'm angry about about why it is not getting more attention. Um, and I always go back to how much money we spend on wars. How much money goes into building an aircraft carrier or some new B whatever B two thousand bomber? Um, and we spend so very, very little on neuroscience research. And yet, this is what is going to destroy us as a country in terms of money. We, by 2050, we're going to be spending a trillion dollars uh, on taking care of Alzheimer's patients. Now, that to me is worth saying, let's declare war on this particular you know, disease. Um, if we were to put a lot more resources into just the research aspect of it, basic science research, you know, where, how does Alzheimer's arise and how do we treat it? Um, we would be saving our country a lot of money. And this is the penny, uh, you know, what is it, what is it? Penny, penny uh, wise and pound foolish. So the way we're going about it now uh, is ignoring the situation and letting uh, baby boomers who are now coming into the danger time of Alzheimer's uh, really suck up all the Medicare dollars and suck up a lot of our resources and families' resources because it's not just hospitals and nursing homes. It's all the families that cannot work because they have to take care of their loved ones. Well, and you're putting your your money where your mouth is. You're raising, you're actively raising money for Alzheimer's research. And you also, um, you were talking about how much we spend on wars. You you're supporting the you're supporting the troops anyway. Yeah, you're right. still going out. You have a USO <laughs> tour coming up with right. of another author, Diana Gabaldon. Yes. And it's not that you're saying that we shouldn't be putting support over here. You're saying. And right. and we also need to be putting support well, over it's, here. You know, it's 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 that you know you look at what is really affecting our country and what what is killing Americans right now at this moment, and I just 
I'm appalled that we don't put more money into neuroscience research. So when I started this idea of, of um, you know, raising funds, the idea was that it would go straight to scientists. Um, I don't, you know, I, I wanted to go to the people who were in the labs who were doing the basic science research. I chose um, uh, the Scripps Research Institute in San Diego and Florida because I, I know this, this um, institute, I know the scientists, I know that it will go straight to them, but I just wish that other other people step in and find and identify their own research institutes that are in their states. Um, it doesn't have to go to Scripps. If you can do your own fundraiser and, and identify something in your own state, that'd be great. Um, but it, we really have to get down to basic science here for this. Tess, how can people find out about your fundraiser or the work that you're, or the novels that you're writing? You can all go to my website at TessGerritsen.com and I have that's sort of like a, where I put everything. <laughs> um, I'm also on Facebook and on Twitter if anybody's interested. Well, it really has been a pleasure to have you come in and speak with us today. We've been speaking with international best-selling author and physician Tess Gerritsen. I, having personally read Die Again and Playing with Fire, they were page turners. I encourage people who are listening to read them. And I do encourage people who are listening to consider putting some money behind Alzheimer's research because as a physician, I see this on a regular basis, how much it impacts patients and their families. Thanks so much for all the work that you're doing, Tess. Thank you. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in Southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires, and dreams, and make sure that the home that you move into is as close to perfect as it gets. And she'll make sure you have fun along the way, because while moving is one of the more stressful life events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in Southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why, when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay. If you don't have fun doing something, why do it at all? Go to MaryLibby.com for more information. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 211, Musical Journeys. Our guests have included Tess Garrison and Amelia Dolan. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our musical journey show. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and take a moment to give us feedback on iTunes. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. We leave you now with a song from Portland, Maine recording artist, Sarah Hallie Richardson. This is the title track from her new album, Phoenix.
Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, McPage, Apothecary by Design, The Rooms, and Mary Libby. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Clinton. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis, and our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. 
For more information on our host production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com.